I was thinking about what Miss Landreth testified, and we've seen He will make a way. That's Amen. Am I right, Miss Landreth? What a what a great testimony. If you don't mind me asking, you've been a, a single lady for how long? Twenty one years. What a blessing. And this isn't the first time I've heard Miss Landreth share a stewardship testimony. She's done that before years ago. But I've heard her share many times in smaller groups about God's faithfulness. And God is faithful. Amen. Your Bible's open to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll be reading some verses out of chapter 8. And then also out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But your Bible's open now to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8. You know, Robbie mentioned uh, the passage that Robbie read was out of 1 Kings chapter 10 about King Solomon. Now, let me tell you the, the importance of that and what is so significant about that passage. It does talk about Solomon's wealth. And, and when you read 1 Kings chapter 10 and you're reading about his kingdom and how God blessed his kingdom, uh, King, Solomon was a young man, okay? And, uh, you know... I still believe, you know, when the Bible, I believe Solomon is not only the wisest man that ever lived, of course, outside of Jesus and Adam, I, I, you know, but after sin, you know, we, we would say after sin, I believe Solomon's the wisest man that ever lived. Probably the wealthiest, it's hard to believe that even in our contemporary society, but I believe Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever lived, including to our day. And I'm, I'm going to give you an example of that in just a second. But it's one thing for, and God, you know, he asked, if you know, in, in 1 Kings 4, it records God asked Solomon to ask for something. And what did Solomon ask for? Wisdom, okay? And God gave him wisdom and wealth beyond comprehension. And of course, you know, one of the great uh, illustrations of that in chapter 10, earlier in chapter 10, is when the Queen of Sheba uh, came to Solomon. And she came with all, she brought all kind of gifts to him. But she came with, in the, in the Hebrew it says, she came with perplexing questions. And she thought with all, questions, plural, she in her mind, it seems the text in, indicates that she thought with all of these questions, uh, she would stump Solomon. But obviously she did not stump Solomon. And if you keep reading, not only did she discover his wisdom was exactly what she had heard about, but also while she was visiting Solomon, she saw his kingdom, the wealth of his kingdom. And one of the most interesting phrases in the Bible is what she says about Solomon. She's talking about, she said, all that I heard about Solomon. I compared that to what I saw. And she says, now what I heard, the phrase is, the half had not been told. She was saying, I thought I'd heard some incredible things about Solomon, almost unbelievable things. But from what I've seen and experienced, she says, the half has not been told. God really did bless Solomon with great wisdom and great wealth. Let me give you one example. And 
I'll just use this as a kickoff into 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you read there, and I'm paraphrasing now, in, in 1 Kings 10, he imported, now this was just from one revenue source, because it tells you that. This was not the only gold revenue source in his kingdom each year, but this was one. And he imported 666 talents of gold a year. By the way, this went on for 40 years. But let's don't get into that math. So, so a talent, I'm going to make a long story short, a talent, the most a talent would be, would be 1,200 ounces or 75 pounds. The official number was 1,110 ounces. That was, the, that was the median that you could shoot for. 1,110 ounces made up a talent. You with me? So now in your mind you're thinking, now we've got to multiply 1,110 ounces in our money, $2,000 an ounce, okay? And then we come up with that figure, then multiply that. six. Well, let me tell you what the figure is. This is just one year of talent, gold, bringing in. 666 a year. 1 billion... $478,000,000 just in the 666 talents of gold a year. Let me say it again. One billion, four hundred and seventy-eight million, and some chump change. Now, that went on for 40 years, and that was just one stream of income for King Solomon. You know, we know that Solomon is known for his uh, wives and his concubines. And he had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Let me, let me give you uh, his household. Uh, the Bible describes the Bible describes how much food was needed to serve his family a day. Now, when you think of his family, it's talking about all the servants, all the leaders. He had, he had like quartermasters and masters. He had all these people. Let me, let me read you a couple of things. It took 150 bushels of flour. Now, this is per day. By the way, it was so hard. The food service for Solomon was so hard. The book of 1 Kings says that there were, uh, let's say, a... Um, Let's just say a chief caterer, a president of food service. He had 12. And it was so demanding that he had 12 leaders and every one of them just took one month. And that month they were responsible for the food service for Solomon's household. Isn't that interesting? So they split it 12 times so you only worked one month out of the year. That's how demanding it was. 150 bushels of flour, 300 bushels of meal per day. 10 oxen per day, 20 cows per day, 100 sheep per day, and other, and that's how it says, other venison, goats, and chicken. Isn't that interesting? And that was what it was required for one day of food service. Uh, and, and his 
in his kingdom. He had 12,000 horses. And it tells you that if he, that if you had purchased, and he purchased a lot of them from Egypt, that each horse cost 150 shekels. He had himself 12,000 horses. He had 1,400 chariots. And you can read it says a chariot was 600 shekels apiece. And he bought a lot of them from, from Egypt as well. All that's impressive. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to hold your finger. Don't you love it when I do this? I want you to hold your finger at 2 Corinthians. And I want you to go to Ecclesiastes. Now all of this is when Solomon's a young man. His king, God blesses him and that kingdom is built. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So go to the middle of your Bible. And go to Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And I want you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If, it's been a long time since we've done the book of Ecclesiastes, but this is what I want you to know about this book. Is the book of Ecclesiastes, is the author is King Solomon. And is at the end of his life. He's an aged senior adult man. So as a young man, when God's blessing him and as a wise king of Israel, he has all this massive wealth. And he goes on and shares his testimony that he gets into this thing. He, he, he says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, I didn't hold any. He, he lost his way, by the way. You read about his wealth, that's in chapter 10. There's other places, 1 Kings 10. There's other places, but you get to 1 Kings chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, here's where he went wrong. It says, Solomon loved many foreign women. So he had a, he had a lady problem. He, 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 and it violated scripture. He intermarried with pagan, pagan nations. So from there, his kingdom fell apart, right? Well, when you get to the end of his life, he's talking about all the things he regrets in Ecclesiastes. This is where we get the word vanity. Vanities upon vanities. Life, if you're not serving God and, and seeking the God that made the sun, everything below the sun is vanity outside of him. That's his, kind of his little phrase. But he talks about, the music he could listen to, the wealth that he had. He, he grew vineyards, had great wine, would get drunk, had parties. He did it all. But without a relationship with the Lord Jesus, in our context, without a relationship with the, with the Lord Jesus, life is vain. All those things just don't matter. So it's like chasing after the wind. But I want you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So at the end of his life, when he's kind of doing a little review of all the things that he's done, look at, uh, I just I'm going to read one verse for the sake of time. Look at verse 10. You can find all these little proverbs all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, besides reading them in Proverbs. Now look what he says. Now here's what I would argue with you would be the richest man that's ever lived had absolutely everything anybody would ever long for, lust for, covet. He had it all. He who loves money, he who loves money, of course the New Testament says this too, 
He who loves money, it's, remember the love of money, it's not, it's the root. Remember what it says? The love, Paul says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, Solomon says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Guess what? Somebody who has a great income, what they're thinking. I, I need a little bit more income. And he says, this also is vanity. So Solomon would be a good example of material possessions and worldly possessions and great wealth. We might say, does not fill the hole in your soul. If you're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you are reading about stewardship for the New Testament church. Okay? And the significance of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and really parts of 7 and into 10, is that Paul is mentioning uh, an offering that has been uh, in the making for a couple of years now. He, uh, in his missionary journeys, one of the things he started doing, I think it was in his second missionary journey, was he started taking a collection for believers back in Jerusalem. And if you read the book of Acts and, and you know a little bit about the early church history, you know that there was massive persecution in, in Israel uh, for a very long time. And a lot of those believers lost their jobs and, and the church had to support a lot of people who were indigent. And so one of the things that Paul did when he traveled in his missionary journeys is he talked about this this offering, this collection for the saints is sometimes how he would phrase it. And the purpose of that and how God, and he was telling people how God viewed money. And if God views money this way, this is how we need to view money. And that's kind of his argument. So he's talking to the church at Corinth. Obviously, this is called the book of 2 Corinthians. But when he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, in which the, you're, going to hear, you're going to hear this little word, ateia, that's like a region, and that's down where Corinth is. It's in Europe, down, down at the bottom, the southern part. Well, he writes the book of 2 Corinthians from Philippi. And Philippi is in the northern part of, of Europe. And this is where, if you're reading the book of Acts, and you hear about Paul getting a call to Macedonia. We even sing a song. We have heard the Macedonian call. Is that what it says? The we have heard the Macedonian call today, send the light, send the light. It's in the handle somewhere, it, believe me. I won't sing it, but it's in there. Y'all know, some of you know what I'm talking about. So, so Paul got this vision, this call to come to Macedonia. So he, he goes, and in Macedonia, the three places you'll think about is Thessalonica, so the book of First and Second Thessalonians, Philippi, where we get the book of Philippians, and a little community town called Berea and and those are the three major areas in the book of Acts you're reading but that's the areas that are in Macedonia and here just know this that Corinth southern southern Europe you know in, in Greece and I mean they had great wealth it's a port city really it had two ports and had an, it was an isthmus so three parts water around it and there were two ports at the you could have one one port at either end of the isthmus. So it had tons of money, tons of commerce. But what happened in Philippi, and you can read this in the book of Acts, I'm giving you a lot of history, 
You can read this in the book of Acts. There was massive persecution to Christians. So when folks were getting saved, and you can read about that in the book of Acts. There was massive persecution, even to Paul and Silas and all these guys, the Philippian jailer, if you'll remember what happened there. Just massive persecution. And Christians were poor. They were, they were isolated. They were persecuted. And so there was a lot of poverty among the church in Philippi, but there was not poverty in the church at Corinth. So Paul's going to use, he's in Philippi when he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. So he's using the context, and that's kind of where we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Again, Macedonia is north, okay? Achaia, when I read that, it's like a state, a county, south, okay? The churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, uh, by the way, that word affliction was used in the common man's language for uh, processing grapes, uh, pressing of grapes and it's what you're thinking Robbie just did it what was it stomping the grapes so this word say what it, what the word meant was you know when they read it they're saying this isn't just some mild inconvenience this is a massive persecution so the, and he's just giving them a little word picture of how tough it was in Macedonia whether you were in Philippi Thessalonica or Berea the Christians there were under severe affliction so he says in a severe test of affliction look what it says read your Bibles I can make something up and tell you something that's not true in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme interesting word uh, their extreme poverty the word extreme is Way beyond bounds, you know. I mean, out of. I mean, like somebody threw the ball way past. So the extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What's, what's Paul saying? Now he's using it as an illustration because he's fixing to remind the Christians at Corinth that they need to be doing better. They need to fulfill the promises that they've made in other earlier visits, that they would take a collection. But what he's doing is he's talking about where he is right now as he sends the letter, that these believers are in severe poverty, but their willingness to give is incredible. That's what he's telling them. It says, uh, generosity on their part. For they gave, now look what it says, okay? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor, could be the word grace, it is the word grace, for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. I love it, it says, for they, for they gave according to their means 
as I can testify and beyond their means. Uh, Paul also uses this little phrase that he describes it as he's doing how they're giving. I'm talking about the Macedonians. He says it's like they're robbing themselves. You know, as Paul watches their sacrificial giving, he's thinking it's, it's like they're pilfering their own, their own incomes in order to give. So beyond their means uh, uh, of their own accords. So it wasn't a command. You see it? And that's today. Do you know it's grace giving? Okay. I want you to know that. There's no New Testament passage where it's commanded. Paul doesn't command them. He didn't command the Corinthians. He didn't command the Macedonians. He didn't command them. He doesn't say, I as an apostle with apostolic authority say to you, give 10% or give 50%. He couldn't say that. So he, he says they're doing this out of their own accord. Okay? And he says, and this is not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. I want you to know that giving whether it be 2,000 years ago to help the saints in Israel or to support the local church, um, is about, it starts with loving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual thing, okay? We, we give because He first gave. The substitutionary death of Christ, dying for me and saving me from my sins, is the cause of my heart wanting to give because He first gave. But it's grace giving. It's not about a, a set percentage. It's about giving like Christ gave, by the way. And Christ gave, gave it all. So he says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Interesting, isn't it? Are you looking at your Bibles? There's so much here. Before he even mentions and promotes again the saints, do you know who else the Philippians supported? To us. What's he talking about? Now think. Now put your thinking hats on. He didn't mention the Israelites again yet. I mean the, the Jews in Jerusalem. He said to us. Do you know what Paul was talking about? They, they supported who? Us. Us. Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and Titus. All these guys that went through Macedonia with the Apostle Paul, what he reminded him was, and by the way, do you know what Paul says in the book of Philippians? That he mentions one church that supported him from beginning to end. It's the church at Philippi. From beginning to end, that church supported me. But anyway, let's read on. So, so they're not only supporting the church, the church that's in poverty and in persecution, not only are given greatly to the saints to be sent to Jerusalem, but he says they're supporting us, the, the ministry. And folks, that's what we do. Uh, another illustration, okay? Um, I always talk about I'm chasing a rabbit, but somebody told me to quit saying that, you know. But I have to say that because it may not make sense. So, so but Paul, we, we read, guys, we read this uh, Thursday night at Wings. In, for, in Philippians 1, he says that we're to be, um, we are, literally it means we are to run together for the faith of the gospel. Together with. But it's the word run. Athlete. It's the word athlete together. And he's talking about believers. Well, when Paul wrote Philippians, he was in prison 
800 miles away in Rome from Philippi. But he says, we run together. So what he was saying is what you do and, and give in Philippi is really a part of what I'm doing here in chains for Christ. It's all part of the work of the kingdom. I love that thought. That's, you know, we give the cooperative program, and, and I don't keep up with all of it, but I know every month or however we do it, quarters, I think it's on a monthly basis, we send money to the Alabama Baptist, and the Alabama Baptist keeps some of it and then sends some of it to Nashville, and we're participating in the work of the gospel literally all over the world. We send some to the association, and we participate in the work of the gospel all over the world. That's somewhat biblical when you look at what this passage says. I'm back in 2 Corinthians 8. So he says, And they, for the will of God to us, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So now he says, Okay, I've talked to you about the church at Philippi. Now I've sent Titus. Yes, that's the same Titus that Paul, that pastored in, in, on the island of Crete. Uh, and he wrote a pastoral epistle to. But he says, uh, we urge Titus, who, by the way, brought this letter to Corinth from Paul from Philippi. We brought that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Folks, it's not by compulsion. You know what? I, sometimes preachers get accused of all we want to talk about is money. I want you to know that's not true. Um, we only take a month, and I didn't do it. I haven't done it in two or three years, a stewardship emphasis on, in November. On, on a lot of preachers' calendars or in Baptist life, for years, I've, we quote, churches I've been a part of have done emphasis in November. And usually that's a smart move because guess what happens in January? We have a new budget, right? We start a new budget. So it's just a reminder that all of us are working together for the faith of the gospel, and it's not our money, it's God's money, just a little reminder. But let me give you an illustration of grace giving, okay? If you go back to the Old Testament, um, you go back to the Old Testament and, and you look at um, uh, in Exodus when God calls Moses to lead the children of Israel to build the tabernacle, the tent, okay? And uh, I want to say this is an exodus. Don't, don't correct me. I'm pretty sure I'm right. You can look at it later. I think it's exodus 35 and 36, or maybe 36 and 37, but the story is. So he calls on the Israelites for everybody who has a giving heart, and they have this list of things they need in order to, to do the tabernacle, to build the tabernacle, Okay? So it was, it was, you know, God commanded Moses to tell the people, this is what we need, this is what you need to give. The next chapter, like chapter 36, they start giving. And before, and, and all the craftsmen, God inspires. It's a great story. He has craftsmen that the Bible says the Holy Spirit inspired to be master craftsmen, and they could teach others to do the same work. Does that sound like spiritual gifts and the equipping of the saints through the church? It's interesting. And so, so, so he gives these two guys, I can't pronounce their name. Uh, Aho Aholab is one of them, but I can't remember the other. It doesn't matter. 
So they have equipment. They're taking, they're collecting all this stuff, gold and silver and bronze and all this stuff. Well, just within a few weeks, guess what, Mo, what Moses is told by the craftsmen? That's right. They're giving too much. There was so much stuff that the craftsmen that were molding things and making things and, and making cups and making, coating them with gold, it was too much. And so they say they're giving too much. So, so Moses has to tell the children of Israel, God's people, to quit giving. And folks, that's not going to happen at our church. Right? But it tells you what free will giving. Why would they do that? Because God had redeemed them from slavery. Because of His great mercy from redeeming them from Egyptian bondage, nothing they gave was too much. And by the way, do you remember why they had this wealth? The promise, they pilfered from the Egyptians. They led them. They wanted them to. So, so God blessed the Israelites and said, before you even leave, you're not just going to leave with your cattle because you're incredible farmers and herdsmen, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you pilfer the Egyptian and they're going to give you. Of course, you would too after the ten plagues. They'd give you whatever you want. And so they took it. Well, then they had those resources to build the tabernacle, but they gave so much. Folks, that's the kind of grace giving that I think the New Testament's talking about here for all of us. And by the way, it's not, it's never the amount. It's not the amount. Really, it's never the amount. Part, part of the biblical teaching is what's left over, Right? It's not the figure you have here. It's what you're taking it from. That's one thing. But it's always about the intent of the heart. Let's, let's finish the narrative here. I'm, I'm back in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Now he's talking to the Corinthians. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and they were a very gifted church, and in, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act, this act of grace also. So Paul reminds the church at Corinth that giving is just an act of God's grace that we, we give. If you read, i tell you what, um, take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Luke. You'll find this interesting. Go to Luke um, Matt, uh, Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter, um, let me see if I can find, Luke 8, Luke chapter 8. I love what uh, Luke 8, uh, you know, twice when you, when you get to the book of Acts, the church is born, the, I mean, at Pentecost, you're in Acts 2, and the church is born, and of course now, What's going on in Corinth, I mean, this is, this is 15 years after the church was born at, at Pentecost, okay? So, but in the book of Acts, early in the work of the church, uh, twice, i just paraphrase it, in Acts, because so the church was born, people, 3,000 people get saved, now you have a 3,000 member church overnight. 
So how are you going to support a 3,000 member church? Who's going to do that? Well, the people do that. The people that got saved. But twice, chapter 2 and chapter 4, this is a phrase. And they sold land and gave it to the church. That happened twice. Just in those three chapters. What it was saying was people who were led sold property that they had and they gave the proceeds to the church. You know what? how God supports His church? Does He send money from the heavens? No. He uses His servants to support the local church. It started in the book of Acts. This is how... And folks, He does it not because He needs the money. He's not he, God's in the money-raising business. This is how God raises His children. He raises His children by teaching us to give and to support our own body of faith. Interesting thing. But I'm in, I'm in Luke... Uh, what did I say? Just checking, see if he's listening. Luke 8. Um, just pick up... Look at verse 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, well, so soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. And so Luke's, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Of course, the, the biggest one would have been Mary Magdalene when I'm talking about evil spirits because it says, from whom seven demons had gone out. Do you read? Look what it says. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. And then look what it says. Uh, the two that I want you to look at is Joanna and Susanna. Right? It says, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So even in the early ministry of Jesus, much like Miss Christine Landreth, ladies believed in Christ. Some of them were single ladies. And they had great means. This even happened to the Apostle Paul. And these ladies were supporting the ministry of Jesus and the apostles out of their own means. Folks, God has always used God's people to support God's work. And folks, you know, when we're thinking, well, I tell you what, go back to, well, we were, I'm out of time. Go, go, go back to chapter uh, 2 Corinthians real quick. Let me read this to you. I'm in 2 Corinthians. Let's go to chapter 9 real quick, okay? This will be a, kind of a kickoff for a next Sunday morning as well. It's about grace giving. Um, by the way, I remember what Peter said. And I'm paraphrasing again. This is 2 Peter 3. Peter's talking about, he's talking about not the tribulation, even though the tribulation is a very destructive time. This is after the tribulation. This is after the thousand year reign. And there's a rebellion, and God wipes out that final rebellion. But that's also when the new heaven and new earth come, okay? Are you with me? Look at me and make sure you know. Okay, it's tribulation, thousand-year reign, and then there's another rebellion. And then Christ just squishes that rebellion, and this is where then he makes all things new. He makes a new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21 22. Well... Peter's talking about that, and this is what he says, paraphrase. He says, since 
all these things are going to be dissolved. What kind of people should we be? Since all of these things are going to be dissolved, the works of man, whatever that is, and it doesn't mean that everything on the earth is going to burn, but, but a lot of it will. He'll, he'll dissolve it, will be dissolved. Uh, by the way, one of the root words is the word, our word, atomic, like an atomic explosion, interesting thing. But it's going to be dissolved. So Peter's saying if all of it's going to be gone anyway, right? Are you going to take any of it with you? No. And you don't have to worry about it because the meek will inherit the earth. You'll inherit the new earth. But who's going to make it? Not you. Who? Him. So Peter's saying if all... So, you know, we... And I could just keep going. I know you don't want me to. And I know my wife. Hey, honey, are you over there? Hey, baby, you love me, don't you? Okay. Hey, um, let me give you two words to think about. There's two ways of looking at it. Are we living as, as if this is our destination? Or are we living because this is our preparation for something greater? Is this the kingdom that we're working for? The, the world that we're in right now, and we're living that way. This is our destination. Of course, it's wrong, but a lot of us get caught up in it. It's about destination, which is not biblical. It's about preparation, that God's preparing us for the kingdom that is to come. That's what we talked about last week. The kingdom of God is as, okay? So destination or preparation. The Bible's teaching us that we're making preparation for a kingdom that, it, that is to come. If you don't mind, let me read this. Well, I won't preach on it. I just want to read it, and we'll set the context for next Sunday. I'm in chapter 9, looking at verse 10. Think about God's sovereign. Even think about seeds that we sow. Uh, cotton would be an example. You, you take 10 pounds of cotton seed, and you produce tons of cotton, okay? just from a few, 10 pounds of cotton seed. And if God will do that with physical things, John, am I right? Thank you. I saw you shake your head. Uh, I'm glad you did shake your head that way instead of the no. But anyway, uh, so you take 10 pounds of seed. That's physical. That's God's provisions. What then? If he'll do that with cotton seed, and he does, it goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, according to its kind. It's seed... What is he going to do with spiritual things? What, it, are the spiritual not more important than earthly things? Well, yes, they are. Let me read it. He who supplies seed, verse 10, he who, 9, 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also, because it's a monetary thing, right? We have to pay our bills. You have to pay the... It's monetary, but look what he says. Uh, the ministry of this service, it's an act of worship. That's why you look in our bulletin, worship through giving. 
Worship through the word. Worship through singing. The service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanks to God, thanksgiving to God. For their approval of this service, they, they will glorify God because of your submission uh, that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen? Let's say the amen. amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Thank you for being here this morning. Let's pray together. Before I pray, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I, I, I do want to plead with those that are here who don't know Christ. Uh, folks, we may not have a formal invitation this morning, but I'm pleading with you. If you're here today and You've never been saved. Jesus saves sinners. I'm one of them. And I know it's true. So I'm begging you to consider the claims of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. and Father, we thank you for the responsibility that you've given us as stewards. And Lord, we know that for stewards... Our master requires that we be found faithful. So God, help us to be committed to biblical stewardship. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great afternoon.